Welcome back to another bonus episode of 20-Minute Health Talk. I'm Rob Hoyle. Last week, we spoke with Dr. Onisa Steffes about treatments available today, right now, for people diagnosed with COVID-19. He broke these treatments down into three main categories, over-the-counter, prescription, and in-hospital. And in this conversation, Dr. Steffes walked us through some tips for those with mild cases and how to manage symptoms at home. Today, we're talking about another over-the-counter medication currently being researched as a potential treatment for COVID. And it's important to note right up front that this is not an approved treatment as studies are still ongoing. But a phase two trial started right here at the Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research. Northwell's research arm in collaboration with Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory showed some promise. Famotidine, also known as Pepsid, is a common over-the-counter drug used to treat heartburn. But could it also quell the inflammation fueled by COVID-19? Our guest today led the team of researchers behind a randomized outpatient study published in the journal Gut to test that theory out. Dr. Tobias Janowitz is an assistant professor at Cold Spring Harbor Lab and an adjunct professor at the Feinstein Institutes. We sat down with him at the Cold Spring Harbor Lab last month to learn more about this innovative study, which set out not only to evaluate the effectiveness of high doses of famotidine against COVID, but also to test the executability of a fully remote trial. Dr. Janowitz, welcome to 20-Minute Health Talk. Thank you very much for having me. The results of this phase two trial found that famotidine is not only safe and effective at potentially treating COVID-19, but that it could also open up new avenues of research into treatments and other inflammatory diseases. Dr. Janowitz, what is the takeaway from these findings and what happens next? Yeah, thank you for asking those questions. The first specific famotidine-related result was that we found that um, famotidine may help patients recover sooner as they have sustained inflammation because of COVID-19 um, to essentially alleviate this inflammation early and make patients feel better sooner. These are preliminary results. This is not a definitive study and further studies are necessary. But we demonstrated this both by looking at patient reported outcome measures. So asking patients, how do you feel on a daily basis across a spectrum of symptoms and tracking how their symptoms resolved and comparing that for famotidine and placebo in a blinded manner. And we also tracked the inflammation in their blood using specific markers of inflammation and seeing how those markers were settling down slightly sooner when patients were taking famotidine compared to when they were taking placebo. Right. We talk about this as being possible treatments for other inflammatory diseases. I never realized this, but but is that what heartburn medication does? Is, it, is that what heartburn does? Is it cause uh, inflammation? Yeah, so the way by which this medication alleviates the um, symptoms of heartburn is thought to be to lower the proton concentrations that is causative of the heartburn sensation in the stomach and stomach area. Um, through blocking a specific receptor that modulates this pH in the stomach. Um, we and others have found that famotidine can downregulate um, the signaling within the virus-infected cells to produce inflammatory cytokines. And that's been confirmed now in cell culture and in model systems, but also um, we have seen evidence of that in the clinical study that the inflammatory molecules would be reduced in the circulation and the signal of the inflammation that radiates out into the organism, into the whole body, would be dampened sooner. And so um, we think that famotidine works by essentially not pushing back against the virus, 
but by helping the body lower the inflammation that is a consequence of the virus. Right, and that was part of the problem that people were having when they had trouble breathing, was it because of their, their lungs were inflamed? You are absolutely correct. The sustained inflammation is what makes people unwell and what makes them sometimes very unwell. It is important to say, though, that we did not study the patients who were very unwell in our trials, so I cannot comment as to the efficacy or the potential efficacy of famotidine in the context of severe COVID. It's fascinating. And I think what's, what's great about this study, too, is that you brought this study to the patients in their homes. Tell us a little bit about how that worked. Yeah, that's a great question. And that's a really important transferable point of this study. Um, what we initially set out for, as you have to imagine, when we planned the study, there were no vaccines available. There were no treatments available. And this was a very contagious disease with potentially grievous outcome to patients. So we spent long and hard thinking about how can we deliver a study in a safe manner and together with the Feinstein Institutes, Northwell Health and Cold Spring Harbor, we came up with a paradigm where we would essentially enroll patients remotely and then take the study medication and the study equipment to their place of residence with overnight delivery after they had consented to participate in the trial and then deliver the trial whilst they were in the comfort of their own home. So in other words, these patients never had to leave the home, travel to the hospital, expose other people on the way to the potentially infectious and grievous condition that they were having at that point. And so we were able to keep not only them, but also the other people safe as we were delivering the study. And that was a really important outcome that that was feasible. Um, to deliver a study in that manner. Is it a better way to do a study, like for people to be more comfortable in a situation where, like you said, there's no fear of actually having to travel and come in? And, and, and also, how would you monitor them while they're, they're doing this at home? Yeah, I think there are strengths and weaknesses, to be fair, to an approach like this. You know, if you had a serious condition, you could not just study patients remotely. You would have to have them under physician supervision. And some trials have to be delivered in the hospital and in the safety of the hospital. Some drugs are given by infusions. Sometimes patients need to be close to an intensive care unit if they were to get less well. But in certain conditions, when um, the, perhaps the patient is not quite so severely affected and when perhaps the patient would prefer to be at home, um, that can be the case in certain infectious conditions, but it can also be in the case in conditions that make you feel unwell, like, for example, progressive cancer, which is something that I think a lot about and where we were initially planning to deliver this disease paradigm, uh, this, this trial paradigm, which we then lifted to apply it to the COVID situation. So getting back to this famotidine trial, how were the patients taking the medication? So what we did is we developed um, with a company a way to um, essentially overcapsulate the medication so that it was indistinguishable between placebo and the treatment. They were coming into, into a wide, large capsule that could be swallowed orally, and they would take um, this medication three times daily, albeit at a much higher dose than you would take it over the counter for heartburn. So we delivered 80 milligrams three times daily as a capsule um, rather than 20 milligrams once to twice daily. Yeah, and I think that's what's so fascinating about research and clinical trials. So many times when, when you're looking for one thing, 
it may unlock something else. Yeah, sure. There are many examples, especially in my area of expertise, true expertise in medical oncology, where um, initial studies have been conducted to find out if a drug works in a certain way in a certain condition. And people realize that perhaps that's not the case, but something else might be the case. And then they can take it back into the laboratory, confirm that, that secondary finding, and then bring it back into clinical trials to perhaps make an impact on another condition. What was the timeline of the study? Um, so we initially had some indication that perhaps patients who were on famotidine were doing slightly better. And so the first thing that we did, we did a case series, which is um, l preliminary clinical research. Then we developed this phase two clinical trial, which is a randomized placebo controlled trial. So that's a strong study but with small patient numbers. So it's not an efficacy study. It looks for ways to how to discover efficacy in further, further clinical trials. And that trial was um, started in July after we published the case series in July 2020. And the results were published early this year in 2022. Um, I think what is important from my perspective is, is the other extended findings that we learn from the trial, because those we are hoping to take forward. So when you say take the other findings forward, what do you, can you expand on that? Yeah, so the things that were really important for us was to demonstrate that, uh, firstly, a trial could be delivered in this remote, decentralized manner, perhaps. So you could imagine this is perhaps transferable, say, if you wanted to study a rare condition across the United States, where you have 300, 400 patients spread over an entire country, and you could have a central hub, ship out the trial to the patients, and somebody from Texas, somebody from Maine, and somebody from Vermont could sort of enroll in this study and be part of the study, and it could be safely delivered, perhaps, um, with a central hub where we collect data. And so that opens up a completely new way to perhaps deliver clinical studies, and that is worth to explore further. Um, the other point is um, the study was very inclusive, and that is one of the big challenges of delivering healthcare for, as we are now trying to develop new clinical trials and trial paradigms and to reach out to patients and patient populations who would not normally participate in clinical trials so much. And we had 33% um, black African-American participants in the study, 25% Hispanic patients in our study. And um, we believe that one of the reasons why that was possible was because we made it easier for them to um, enter clinical trials and to lower the access barrier because um, we would take the sort of effort or and the cost of the clinical trial down by bringing the trial to their own home. Yeah, I think it's so much easier, right? When you're doing something in your home, it's, it's much more easy to be a part of that. Does that create problems as far as like, how do you track? How do you make sure they're taking their medication? How do you know that everything is, is gonna be correct? Yes, of course, new paradigms, new problems, new challenges, let's say. Um, and so these challenges have to be taken um, one step at a time. We were able to follow each patient every day by having a dedicated person who would call them up, who would monitor their data that would, they would send in every day. And with regards to the drug concordance um, that you're asking about, we would um, tackle that in two fronts. One would be to ask the patients on a daily basis, have you taken your medication, and record their answers. The other approach that we took 
we took a blood sample and then used the facilities here at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory to trace the blood and to trace the medication in the blood and thereby be able to determine exactly what concentration of the blood was, uh, of the drug was in the blood at any one time. So you kind of would know anyway. Correct. Do you feel like this type of thing is going to help get more people involved in more studies across the board? Absolutely. And that's the key point and key message that I think I would like to put out here. Um, this study is one contributor to shifting the paradigm of how we deliver clinical trials. Um, we are not the only people to think about this. This is a national agenda. There are many people who are trying to do the right thing. The government is coordinating it in that manner as well. And the NIH is in encouraging people to think about decentralized trials and using remote clinical trial monitoring um, as an enrichment for clinical research. I think what is important is we were able to do this, admittedly with a small number of patients, 55 patients were enrolled in the end, but we were able to collect their data deeply, analyze it, write up the results and publish them in a sort of some total of 18 months from the conception of the study to the report of the results. And I think that's a really important sort of benchmark and an early contribution to delivering um, this type of clinical study so that others can learn from the things that went well and from the challenges that we encountered. That's great. This trial was a collaboration between Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research, Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories, and you said this al alliance unlocks potential on both sites. Can you explain what you mean and how other institutes could benefit from this model? Yeah, I can. Um, thank you for asking that, because I think what is really important to recognize is as you take on challenges where individual components have to be delivered at the highest level, you sometimes have to bring partners together that are experienced at the respective components. Um, Cold Spring Harbor is a center of excellence for basic research and has made fundamental contributions there and has the facilities to drive true deep research. The Feinstein's Institutes are a great translational research center where patients, are, where some groups work a bit closer to clinical research and some groups work on fundamental research. So they have this translational arm, bringing research closer to the patient and bringing the patient closer to research. And Northwell Health is an institute that is extremely strong at healthcare delivery and operations. And so each component brought their own expertise to the table to deliver together a clinical trial that none of them could have delivered in isolation. So it, I would go as far as saying not only was this um, made it the trial easier, it was a necessity to bring these three groups together with their respective strengths in order to be able to deliver this. And with regards to other, what can others learn from this? There are of course, within the United States and within uh, over the globe, other centers where research institutes and clinical entities work closely together. But I think it is really important to embrace this partnership of fundamental research and clinical excellence as we move science forward and as we try to do deliver better science for the benefit of patients. Now more studies are underway building on these findings. Among this research was another phase two trial from the Feinstein Institutes, which showed that famotidine may also influence nerve signaling from the body to the brain. That paper was published in May in the journal Molecular Medicine. 
And that does it for this bonus episode of 20 Minute Health Talk. Thank you to Dr. Janowitz, as well as the Feinstein Institutes and Cold Spring Harbor researchers, administrators, and participants for their work and dedication. And thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in. I'm Rob Hoyle, and on behalf of my co-host, Sandra Lindsay, who is currently in Jamaica supporting a Northwell-led mission trip, a topic I'm pretty sure you'll be hearing about very soon in the near future. Have a great day and stay safe. Mm -hmm.